How would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. And good morning. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It's Friday morning, 7 a.m. And you're with Jacob and Zane. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Um, hope everyone's um, having a very good morning. Um, the weather's been all over the place this week. Sometimes it feels like we are living in winter or living in spring. It sort of fluctuates between hot, very hot, and very cold. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I was up in Bendigo last week and there was a bunch of hail. Yeah. Like a lot of hail. <laughs> Weird. And um, it was raining, well, it was hailing heavily last Friday as well um, during the during the protests um, that happened last week against um, police repression of protests. Hmm. Um, yeah, but I guess I want to, um, before we announce what's coming up on the program, um, like to acknowledge that FreeCR this morning is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I'd uh, like to pay our respect to elders past and present um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land and that FreeCR and Green Left, we- um, Green Left Weekly Radio will always support um, the fight for Indigenous sovereignty and support um, um, the fight for their land. <laughs> for sure. Now, I guess... Um, we got a pretty we got a pretty good program lined up. We got two guests um, who will be coming to speak um, with us um, this morning. So we have Federico Fontes from Green Left Weekly, who will be speaking to us about the unfolding coup situation that's in, um, happening in Bolivia. Um, and then we'll be talking with um, James Lavery from uh, the. I think the Fire Brigade Employers Union um, from New South Wales to talk a bit about um, to talk about the big New South Wales fires that are currently engulfing New South Wales at the moment, um, and then we'll be then be talking about all the kind of different headline news um, that has been happening kind of the past week, and then stuff that's been kind of happening in international politics. Yeah. Um, so, Zane, is there anything you particularly wanted to start it off with? Um, oh, just it's pretty historic this week. Uh, the uh, young uh, Yundamu man, 19-year-old um, Kumanjai Walker, was uh, killed. Uh, police uh, turned up at Kumanjai Walker's house on a Saturday night. Uh, my understanding is that he was shot three times and dragged 
fairly unceremoniously from his house and thrown in the paddy wagon, uh, and he's died. And 28-year-old um, police officer Zach Rolfe has been charged uh, with murder in the follow-up to that, which is, I think there's only one other instance where a police officer has actually been charged with murder of a, uh Aboriginal person in custody prior to this. So it's quite rare that that sort of charge would be laid. There was huge protests, um, uh, you know, big snap protests around the country uh, in in major cities and regional towns. Uh, I think on on th- on Wednesday there was big protests in Sydney and Melbourne, and then yesterday there was a thousand people got out on the streets in Alice Springs, which I don't know what the population of Alice is, probably a few tens of thousands of people. It's a pretty small town, and for a thousand people to get out on the streets in Alice, that's actually quite a big protest uh, by their standards. And, mm. yeah, mm. people are saying this is some of the most um, explosive, um, or, or it's created the biggest rift between Aboriginal people and the police force since the uh, the the death of Mawurundji Damadji on Palm Island in 2004. Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the things um, to put a bit of a, I think the national wide protest, I think definitely had an impact on kind of pushing back against this police violence. And I think it, it's even quite striking the fact that um, there were mobilisations not just in the major cities, but in a lot of kind of remote communities. And I think it indicates, um, because really when you put um, all this in the context of colonization and um you know the status quo status quo ultimately does not want um this kind of situation to keep you know happening um where where aboriginal people are going to you know rise up um communities start rising up um and start resisting this kind of unjust colonial system um and it's even actually even reflected in the fact in a small way to from what I um, at, um, what I witnessed at the rally on Wednesday, um, you know, following all these sort of, um, you know, the brutal kind of police repression that happened at the International Mining and Resources Conference, the fact that at previous um, Aboriginal rights rallies there have always been kind of massive kind of police re- presence, but what was noticeable about this rally was the police presence was quite low-key, um, compared to what it has been previously. I mean, there was still police there, but it was actually far less. In fact, there was a funny moment where we marched all the way to the police station and then um, a group of activists sort of put um, police, um, you know, the sort of crime scene sort of tape um, um, in front of the police officers. Um, and in terms of... Um, the amount of police that were at the station, it was noticeably far less than what they had outside the Rio Tinto office mm. uh, during the blockade IMI protest. So I think that's sort of reflective, I think, of the pressure that I think the, poli- um, the, um, the police institution, the federal police, are feeling right now, especially in light of everything that was happening around um, IMARC, you know, with a, a police officer being outed with the sort of are you okay sign, which is alt-right. Um, and then there was the, the whole issue of the EAD, eat a dick hippie kind of thing. Mm. So there's clearly a lot more pressure being put on the police force, and I think it is the direct result of ordinary people standing up um, against this repressive arm of the state. Mm. 
and uh, just as uh, has occurred in the aftermath of the killing of Mulrunji Damaji, um, the Northern Territory Police Association has come out and indicated that they intend to um, do everything they can to defend the officer who's been charged with murder. Um, and, yeah, people are obviously not particularly happy about them coming out and making that statement. And the, the media statement that they put out says something like, blah, 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 blah. Police put their lives on the line every day to protect people from violent offenders. And it was just like a unnecessary thing to include in the media release and kind of casts aspersions, I think, on the, uh, on the young man who's been killed, Common Jai Walker. And, uh, yeah, people are understandably pretty, uh, upset about the police association coming out so soon and indicating that they're going to back up their guy. And that's, that's been the history of the police association over the years. Every time there's a, a black death in custody, the police association defends the, uh, the cops, defends their own to the absolute hilt. Hmm. And I guess within that particular um, Indigenous community, um, there was just a news article that just popped up on ABC this morning um, that Indigenous elders are calling for guns to be removed from communities after the Yong Damu um, death. Um, and they're, um, they're um, you know, in the response to the fact that they're ba- basically pushing the demand that there be that um, the Northern Territory um, Police in these communities should have no guns. Mm. And in fact, one of the actually the other point um, that was sort of made quite strikingly in the, in this um, at the rally by one of the Indigenous activists was that you know actually police shouldn't be allowed in the community full stop. Mm. Um, and in fact, they if they want to come into their community, they should have, they should meet with the elders and it should be outside. <laughs> mm. um, I thought that was a sort of striking point that was kind of made um, during the rally. Mm. Um, and then I also thought um, the kind of last kind of um, some of the other points that were kind of made at the rally at the end was um, kind of making this sort of empowering call that when it comes to... <laughs> When it comes to any kind of form of kind of police violence, we have to stand up and, you know, we actually do have a weapon that we can use and it's actually our mobile phones and that we should any kind of case of police brutality or police violence that we see, we should always take up our phones and film it and then put it, post it all around social media or whatever media we can because this is, you know, the uh, something that as we, as ordinary people can do, might seem like, you know, very daunting and, and intimidating dealing with um, police, especially for all the activists that were at the blockade and international mining resources conference. So I thought that was also a good point. And then, um, Robbie Thorpe, you know, um, also made the point that, you know, you know, we, you know, we, with the, when it comes to the cops, they actually are following the orders of someone and that is, it's the government. And of course that was at a pro, well, we ended our protest at the Parliament House, which kind of brought home the message. Um, of the links between, you know, how the fact is, it's it's the police are allowed to do this because it's that they they're just simply following the rules and the laws that have been set up by the the oppressive state um, government. <laughs> mm. 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 
So yeah, and I think yeah, there's um potentially going to be I think there's potentially going to be more mobilizations I guess around these issues uh, as the kind of as a, as um these the case kind of develops. So yeah, we're going to um we'll keep you posted about any kind of actions and protests that are going to be happening and any more recent developments in this in this case. Uh, but yeah, we might play a quick announcement, a uh, few announcements, um, before moving on to our first interview with um, Federico Fontes. Yeah, we've got the editor of Green Left, Fred Fuentes, coming up, and he's going to be talking to us about this uh, coup attempt that's going down in Bolivia, and it's uh, uh, it's 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 much more of a coup than uh, than an attempt at this stage in time, which is pretty scary and uh the forces behind it are really reprehensible um so i'll I'll kind of i'll let fred i won't steal fred's uh, thunder kind of thing i'll let fred give us uh quite a bit more of a detailed overview of that but yeah it's pretty disturbing stuff all right stick around you're in green left radio on 3cr it's friday morning it's uh what 12 13 minutes past seven Six years I've been in desert. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Brings us all together. Time, you'll get your time to take that first step out that front door to freedom beyond these walls. Make sure and I just want to say thank you to all of you for giving us the opportunity to speak on air. The reason, the bigger the calling. Make your commitment and watch things. And you can listen to audio from this year's broadcasts and previous years as well. Online at any time, just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. But also while I'm here, I'd like to say thank you for all for coming, um, helping, giving us a chance to do this. It's really good, you know. It's been going for a while now. Hopefully, it goes, it keeps going. You know, like it's, it's good that we can do this and um, get our voice out there as prisoners. We can't blame everything on the external, so let's stop looking for it in the hands of the persecutor, because real power comes from here and it comes from family. If you would like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 9419837. 3CR, always bringing you the latest union news. They're coming after us at the moment. They want to get rid of penalty rates, the big push from businesses. They want to get rid of all the things that you and I have fought for. So there's tens of thousands of jobs gone, contracted out to sham contracting arrangements. On 8.55am and on the web, 3cr.org.au. All right, welcome back. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR and on the line. We have Fred Fuentes, the editor of Green Left Weekly, to talk about what's happening in Bolivia. Welcome, Fred. Uh, hello, and thanks for having me back. 
Uh, it's always always a pleasure, comrade. Um, now, just to kind of set a bit of context, can you just talk about uh, a bit about the history and the achievements of the government of Eva Morales and the movement towards socialism from 2003, when they were first elected, up until the present, uh, just to provide some background about this uh, coup attempt that's, that's currently underway. Yeah, I think it's very important to really understand where Evo Morales and his party, the, the movement towards socialism, comes from uh, in order to then understand what is occurring today. Now, the, the movement towards socialism really dates back in, into the 90s, and it largely comes about as a result of some of the most important uh, and largest indigenous groups, uh, peasant-based groups, coca-grower groups from where Eva Morales comes from, essentially deciding that after many years of, of struggle um, and realising that the politicians in parliament uh, continuously made laws that were against the interests of, of indigenous people, of people from the countryside, of, of coca-growers with the the U.S. war on drugs uh, being a, a really big part of, of Bolivian politics um, during that period, decided that it was necessary to, to not just um, continue to protest on the street but to form their own political party. So the, the movement towards socialism is, is largely that a, a coalition of largely uh, rural-based, um, but not exclusively. Um, uh, you know, over time, they would grow to form alliances with other social movements uh, in, in urban areas, in particularly in places like El Alto, uh, which in the start of the, the, the century, in the 2000s, would, would play a really central role in some of the important uprisings that occurred that ended up first overthrowing Gonzalo Sanchez de la Sada in 2003 and then uh, Carlos Mesa, who ran as a candidate in his most recent elections uh, in, in, in 2005. Uh, th those overthrow of, of the neoliberal repressive governments paved the way to elections in, in 2005 and slowly with that combination of street protests and, and accumulating uh, uh, votes at elections and, and spreading from the country to the city, the movement towards socialism was basically you know, able to win those elections in, in, in a historic vote, the first time any presidential candidate won, a, won an election outright with over 50% of the vote. And, and what we've seen since then, and I think really what has been the, the biggest change and what you know is the key to understanding what's occurring today in Bolivia is that this whole process leading up to the elections of the movement towards socialism and then rapidly expanding post those elections is that for the first time really uh, in, in Bolivia's long history, the indigenous countryside have had a, a seat at the table of, of politics uh, and not just a seat at the table, but in some ways perhaps, the, the, you know, had, had control of the most important seat, that, that being the presidency. So use, using that that position from, from government, the, the movement towards socialism has largely sought to uh, empower indigenous communities, uh, imbuing a real sense of dignity and pride amongst that, that section of, of society uh, that was previously, you know, totally marginalised, you know, which is an amazing thing to, to consider that, you know, censuses generally show anywhere between 50-60% of the population is indigenous, but, you know, you turn on a, a TV prior to the most recent period turn on a TV in Bolivia and indigenous people were just invisible. Um, and they just did, didn't exist uh, in a society when they were overwhelmingly the, the majority. That's been combined, of course, with a lot of uh, social programs, uh, redistributive programs that have helped to alleviate poverty, seen over a million uh, people lifted out of poverty in Bolivia, uh, illiteracy uh, eradicated. So a lot of, a lot of uh, concrete programs that have really um, 
changed the lives uh, for, for millions of ordinary ordinary Bolivians and, and helps to explain why even uh, 14 years after first being elected in 2005, the, the movement towards socialism today uh, continues to be the, the largest political party with the, which is, with the largest support vote, uh, vote that was expressed at the most recent elections on, on October 20, where... Uh, and we may get into this a, a bit later, but irrespective of, of, of how, what one sees of the result, uh, no one no one denies that Evo Morales came first in that elections with somewhere in the vicinity of 45, 46, 47% of the vote. Yeah, and, and so, and can you, well, can you just extend a little bit on that latest election result uh, and, and sort of the, the margin of Evo Morales in, ahead of the, the next most popular candidate? Yeah, look, as I said, I think that background is important to understanding both the election result, the controversy over it, and the events that have that have subsequently happened. The reality is that from the first day that Evo was elected in 2005, he's faced important opposition, of course, from the old traditional political class, who were basically dislodged out of the presidency, dislodged out of having a majority in parliament, uh, and who, you know, for the last... Well, certainly, at least since the times of the dictatorships, although many of them have direct links with with, with elements that were part of, of of previous military dictatorships. But at least if we just talk about since the restoration of democracy in the early 80s, had largely exchanged power amongst themselves. All of a sudden, there was this this new player, and so of course that section of society was always against them. But the the, the sort of more more white or, or, or mixed uh, urban middle class always as well had a certain hesitancy towards the movement towards socialism. That is, you know, if, if you wanted to sum it up, it was that kind of perhaps a, a sort of a semi, semi-unconscious semi fear that, you know, we had, we had treated the Indigenous people so bad for so long that now that they were in power, perhaps they were going to come for us. Now, of course, that, that never happened, but that, that fear, that paranoia always kind of remained within a certain section. And, and when they began to see Indigenous people all of a sudden in universities, in, in the public sector, in the spaces where traditionally were just reserved for them, that, that, that sort of hostility was there. That hostility uh, then in the most recent elections combines with uh, a broader discontent uh, that builds up around the election itself uh, and primarily whether Evo Morales is allowed to stand uh, in those elections. Uh, in 2016, there was a referendum to reform the constitution the basic question was to allow candidates to be able to stand as many times as they want in an election. Um, in Bolivia, you know, historically, very, very rarely has anyone... Been, I mean, Evo's broken records by being in power for 14 years. In, in, in Bolivia, never has anyone been re-elected. Even, even military dictatorships haven't lasted um, as long as, as Evo's been able to do by simply running elections and, and winning overwhelmingly. Um, that referendum gets narrowly defeated, uh, roughly 51-49. But the following year, uh, the the constitutional... uh, Well, a a case is put to the constitutional tribunal saying that uh, under the Bolivian constitution, no articles in the constitution are allowed to uh, contravene international conventions that Bolivia signed up to. And amongst other international conventions, there's a San Jose Pact that says... That every every citizen should have the right to stand for office. This is interpreted to mean that any any restrictions, uh, such as the restrictions on more than two terms, uh, is a restriction on that democratic right. Violates the constitution, and so therefore the constitutional tribunal rules that Evo is allowed to vote. Um, sorry, is, is he able to stand as a candidate? 
So discontent brews with that. So you've got this traditional section of society that, you know, is really looking to get rid of masks. You've got a broader section that is now discontent with, with these elections. Um, they then become further discontent with the sort of uh, discussions that revolve around the vote on October 20, uh, where uh, on the one hand, on the night of October 20, uh, what's referred to as a quick count, um, demonstrates that Eva having won, but without 10%, but when the actual official vote count is announced uh, in, in, in the preceding, in the following days, we see that Evo has won, but by more than 10%. And under Bolivian law, if you get more than 50% or beat the nearest rival by more than 10%, you, you win outright in the first round and it don't need to go to a second round. Uh, there's allegations there of, of fraud, and again, happy to go into more detail on that, but so we have... The, the original opposition to mass this discontent about whether Morales should be allowed to stand, uh, aggravated by the sort of the arguments about the validity or not of the election result, and then other sectors that begin to get involved in, in the protests against Evo. Most importantly, the mutiny by by the police, which really brings brings the, the country to the to the to this sort of point where, at the end, uh, even though Evo uh, accepts. Uh, the rulings or the recommendations of the Organization of American States who ordered the vote to uh, call for new elections and to call for dialogue in order to set up a new uh, electoral commission uh, to oversee this election and to discuss whether he should or shouldn't be a candidate. Uh, by that stage, for the, the anti-mass sections, it's, it's too late. Uh, Eva has to go. Military says he has to go. And so we enter this, this new period of essentially an unconstitutional government and, and, and lack of clarity as to what will happen next in Bolivia. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about the forces behind the coup and also the response from indigenous and community organisations in a minute. But if you could just tell us a bit more uh, about this process of this coup I don't know whether to call it a coup attempt because it's still in play or is it officially a coup? Like, I think that's part of the question. How is this going to play out? And we'll get to that as well. But can you just give us a bit more of a, a, a timeline or a description of what has happened over the last week in terms of Evo being pushed out and, and some of the repression that's been seen as, as well? I, I think the, the, the key part, and this hopefully will uh, allow me to address the question of the actual results of the October 20 elections. Um, the, the, the key sort of factor that, that sort of, I suppose, was the, 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 the drop that fills the glass um, was the uh, OAS's audit of the October, or the preliminary report um, in its, of its audit of the October 20 elections. As I said, discontent was brewing. Uh, there's allegations on the day, on the night of, of the elections and the day after of fraud. Evo says, well, look, let's, let's audit it. You know, the Organization of American States, that's, that's a supposedly independent organization. Um, you know, we, let's, let's see what, what it says. Of course, the opposition rejects the audit, um, but, the, and, and then just simply continues with the protest and goes from demanding a second round to Evo's resignation. Uh, but then the report comes out, and, and the report really is what sort of you know, becomes a you know a trigger for an escalation of what occurs uh, in, you know within the space of 48 hours essentially from it being released. Now, the the report has been basically um, reported uh, as saying that there was clear and evident fraud in the elec in the elections. Uh, unfortunately, most of the media has relied on the fact that most people won't actually go to read the report. 
uh, if you read the report itself, um, it is firstly very clearly a politicised report, and I'll get back to why that's the case. But what, what, he, what in sum, it's, it's just a 13-page report, the overwhelming bulk of which is dedicated to uh, what I referred to before being the quick count, and now the, the, or the TREP. Now, the, the, the quick count, you know, which the media doesn't uh, explain, is not an official count. Although it's carried out by the Electoral Commission, it's largely done on the night of the elections to very quickly tabulate electronic results coming from, you know, a large amount of, of booths to be able to present, at least on the, on the first night, some kind of tendency of the way that the vote is going. Um, in this case, they did it up until about 83% of the vote. They announced that, and then as generally happens, as I said, because it's not the official vote, it's not the actual vote of the ballot papers that are being counted, um, that stops. Now, this is where then the media creates the confusion, saying, oh, this, the, the count mysteriously stopped, and then when it restarted the next day, it was a different result. That's just simply not the case. The quick count is meant to stop because, as I said, that's all it is. It's not an official count. The only count that matters is the actual count of the ballot papers, which continued on, which never stopped, and which came up with the final result showing that Eva Morales had won by 10%. I mean, how the is last... this... We, we see this on an election night in Australia. Anthony Green will give his predictions and projections, but you never get the full count on the first night. It's not possible. Exactly. Would be that you know obviously Anthony Green is is not part of the Electoral Commission, but he, but imagine that if instead of Anthony Green you had the Electoral Commission basically doing what Anthony Green does, which is look, you know, part, based on previous preference results, well, I predict that the seat will go this way or that way. Um, but even Anthony Green, you know, uh, says there are certain seats that are so close to call that you know he says we can't really can't really call this tonight. This is essentially what happened in Bolivia, except, as I said, the difference being that rather than just being a political commentator, it's the Electoral Commission who releases a result. Uh, one can even debate why they even do this, but that's, that's what they're meant to do. They released their result. The result showed one thing. They said, look, let's continue the count, which is the official count, the actual ballot paper count. Of course, the opposition and anyone who's followed Bolivian politics would know that at that point, even with a 7 8% margin, so less than 10%, the tendency would be for Evo's share of the vote to grow. As I said it right at the start of this interview, Evo's base has always been the countryside, uh, exactly the place where the votes are the last to be counted. So there was no doubt that that, that gap would increase. The only, of course, doubt would be would it increase to, to the 10%, 10 11% margin. But going back to the OAS report, the OAS, OAS report's spends all its time talking about the quick count, which is not even the official count, then notes some irregularities in the official count, uh, although it doesn't say that it's definite case of fraud. They just say it's unclear, um, and they say that we're unable to check those irregularities, um, basically because of um, votes having to be moved from the official place where they were counted or, in some cases, um, being destroyed. What they miss or purposely leave out is that the reason those votes were destroyed or that vote counting had to move was because opposition protesters on the night of the election uh, burnt down a number of the Electoral Commission offices and so the uh, counters were forced to have to leave those buildings in order to take the votes elsewhere. In sum, they, they spend most of the report talking about a, a vote that's not the real vote. 
They talk about irregularities, but say they can't prove one way or the other, and essentially say they can't prove it because, although they don't mention it, because the opposition burnt those burnt those ballot boxes. They recommend, despite all that, they simply recommend a, a new elections. Eva reads the report, says, "Fine, new elections. Let's have a dialogue about a new uh, electoral commission. If you don't trust the current one, that's fine. We get a new one." But by then it was too late. This was going to be used as clear evidence of fraud. It was going to build on that discontent that I'd mentioned before about that already existed about whether Evo should be allowed to stand and and the sort of questions that were raised. This 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 now proved beyond doubt that you know there was you know this was Evo consolidating power for the rest of his life, um, and so therefore it was absolutely essential to 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 de- to demand his resignation and to you know irrespective of the electoral result. Um, the police move in. The military also suggests he resigns. Evo resigns, but then that leaves a power vacuum. Who, who, what happens? Because what you see is that not just does Evo resign, and, and I should add to this, Evo, his vice president, who would have been next in line, Abro Garcia Linero, resigned. The, the president of the Senate resigns, who would have been next in line. The president of the House of Deputies resigned, who would have been next in line. All of them make clear that their resignation is not based on anything to do with supposed fraud, anything to do with the election result, but all of them make it clear. All of them had their physical integrity threatened, their family members' houses burnt down, family members kidnapped. They said, look, in order to save the lives of our family members, in order to put an end to this violence, we we resign. Um, And they made it clear, again, none of that is put forward in the media. It's just simply presented as though they resign in order to give a veil of constitutionality to what then occurs, because a vacuum of power occurs. Constitutionally, no one's really there to fill to fill the vacancy. The opposition decide well they've got the second vice president to the uh, House of, of the Senate. It takes them a couple of days, but then they finally try and convene Parliament to swear uh, Arnez, Arnez, who's now the the, the so-called interim president uh, in, in Bolivia. They can't get quorum though in in Parliament because the majority of Parliament continues to be movement towards socialism, deputies and senators. Despite that, in front of about ten ten senators or five senators, uh, Anyez swears herself in as the new president of the Senate, and then by de facto the new the new president of Bolivia, in order to give some level of uh, or some veil of constitutionality, some veil of institutionality to a period where we saw for essentially for. 24, 48 hours, uh, no government or no, you know, official government in existence, and simply a military uh, who had declared a state of siege, a, a curfew, uh, in, particularly in La Paz and El Alto, and who were already out on the streets uh, repressing protests. Hmm. Um, now, can you tell us a bit more about the forces behind the coup? Uh, well, look. Uh, like the police, as, the military, said, but also the political parties or, or factions, what groups are involved there? Yeah, as I said, the, the, what's got to be understood is that whilst there were different sections in the protest, and, and that can't be denied, it, you know, there's, there's no, nothing, it, it's not possible to say that all, all of these protests were just simply uh, far-right, you know, opponents of Eva Morales. As I mentioned previously, you know, he was a combination of, yes, historic uh, elements of Bolivian society that have rejected the idea of an indigenous president, combined with other sectors who were discontent by Evo running again, combined with others who, in the mix, as always happens in Bolivia, in the mix of growing protests, felt that they could 
jump on board as well and put, bring their own demands uh, around their own issues uh, to, to those protests to, to pressure a president. Um, but what, what became very clear uh, in the period essentially from October 20 elections to uh, Evo's final resignation um, is that the leadership, those that were capturing the, 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 or that became the public face of this movement, very very quickly shifted rapidly to the right. So you have basically on on the night of October 20, the, the so-called face of the opposition was Carlos Mesa, who I mentioned before, overthrown in 2005 by popular uprising, runs in these elections, comes second, uh, you know, claims that you know that the, that this this means that there should be a second round, and that becomes the initial demand of the opposition. But once the more reactionary forces realise that there's no point really at this, at this point now going for elections, but instead just simply pushing to ouster uh, uh, Evo, and more importantly, do so in a in a in a context where we would not just get rid of of Evo as president, but get rid of. Uh, the, the entire administration impose a transitional government and start to basically uh, politically annihilate or wipe out the movement towards socialism as a political force. Get, you know, get the leadership of this movement, in particularly Luis Fernando Camacho, um, the head of the Santa Cruz Civic Committee. The Civic Committees are in their basically organizations that exist you know, on, on a regional level um, in, in all of the different departments and are largely being uh, used by right-wing forces in most cases, although not in every department. Each department, or what we would call state, has its different politics. But uh, particularly in the east, and particularly in Santa Cruz, which is the heartland of the opposition, has always been used as a as a veneer of a civil society organisation to really organise and group uh, powerful economic and political interests. And Luis Camacho, Fernando Camacho, is the one who. Makes you know who with a discourse of bringing the Bible back to to the presidential palace, of uh, as he put it, having ha- having to have the balls to get the, the the Indian out of the presidential palace, um, is the one that then becomes the, the the face of this this resistance and and says uh, you know we're no longer interested in a second round, we're going we're going for Evo's resignation and, and he's. Since Evo's resignation played a very, very crucial role up to and including being the, the first person from the opposition to enter into the the, the, the government palace or the old presidential palace, uh, where he entered with, with, with the Bible saying that Pachamama, the, the sort of the indigenous word for, for Mother Earth, um, you know, would no longer enter here. Uh, that the you know this, the Christ is, is here to stay in the presidential palace. Um, who's been, who was there standing right next to Agnes when she came out to speak to the public after being sworn in as interim president, whose main lawyer or sidekick is now a minister in, in the new government and who's been participating in governmental meetings. So th- this is a person whose, you know, background is in, uh, organizations such as the Santa Cruz, um, Santa Cruz uh, Youth Union, which is essentially a, a semi, or if not semi-openly fascist organisation that's expressed its hatred towards uh, what it sees as the the the, the west of the country um, because of its predominant indigenous uh, population and has fought to maintain the east as a, a pure white white society. Uh, they, these are the kind of forces that are now really in the in the driver's seat, and 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 that's been expressed by the the sort of policies that we're seeing, where the new interior minister. 
uh, has basically already started to tell ex ex Morales ministers and even the brother of the vice president, you better start running because we're coming for you. We're going to hunt you down. Um, we've seen rounding up of indigenous protesters, but in particularly targeting movement towards socialism parliamentarians um, and targeting uh, protest leaders uh, in order to ensure that you know by the time any kind of election comes around uh, again that the movement towards socialism will really have no chance of being able to put up a, a decent electoral fight. And we've seen the most latest case of that being uh, just today, Carlos Mesa announcing that because um, Eva had said that he would be willing to come back to the country to be part of any dialogue, including resigning any possibility of being candidate if it could help to bring back peace to the country. But Carlos Mesa, who's got no official role in the government, um, has said that, you know, Evo's not allowed back into the country and has said that Abel Garcia Linera, his vice president, um, both Evo and the vice president would not be able to stand in any future elections, even though there's no legislation saying that the vice president couldn't stand. Uh, so we, we see very clearly a deliberate attempt to use this, this new situation, this formation of a coup government uh, or transitional government, whatever you want to call it, uh, to basically start to wipe out the movement towards socialism as any viable political force because they know that uh, no matter what, even if perhaps the movement towards socialism couldn't win next presidential elections, if Evo wasn't their candidate, they would still remain a very powerful political force in Parliament, having once again won essentially two-thirds of the Parliament in, in the October 20 elections, continue to have strong bases in different, in different states and governors, and uh, um, what they want to see happen is to basically... Turn, turn around all of those last 14 years of what I said was of, of indigenous people entering into power, into spaces of power, and re restore the country back to what it was like before. Hmm. Um, we're, we've got to start wrapping it up, but just to kind of finish, what's been the response from indigenous and community organisations across uh, Bolivia to this coup attempt? Do you see, like, what are the possibilities going forward? I know there's been some huge protests in neighbouring uh, countries or in the region, in Chile and Ecuador. Um, are we likely to see a, a huge mass revolt in Bolivia kicking the coup plotters out? Or what, what's, can we get a bit of an idea of the balance of forces and the response to the coup from popular sectors? Yeah, obviously it's very hard to tell exactly what will happen in the next few days. What we do know, though, is that at first it has, you know, undoubtedly been a strong reaction from movement towards socialism, supporters, activists, uh, social movements aligned with the organisation who see this as a direct threat on, you know, their president, their government, but also as a direct threat on on their on on them as a, as a political, you know, party as a, as social movements. Um, so they've been a big part of the mobilisations uh, and are beginning to, uh, many of them from the countryside, you know, travelling towards El Alto, which sits just above La Paz, the capital, uh, to join protesters in El Alto who are amongst the first to, to come out and, and, and oppose um, this coup. There's also been a, a broader um, uh, opposition uh, that has been very much virulently opposed to a lot of the anti-Indigenous stance uh, that's been, or the, the anti-Indigenous racism and discrimination that's been expressed uh, in the last few weeks. Uh, everything from, of course, actual physical violence uh, to the symbolic uh, violence that's been occurring. So, for instance, the removal of the Wipala flag, a, 
indigenous flag that is constitutionally um, uh, seen as uh, as one of the flags of, of Bolivia being taken down uh, in the presidential palace and being burnt uh, in opposition protests. And these kind of uh, actions have very much angered important sections of the indigenous population who perhaps didn't vote for Evo or, you know, wouldn't have minded if he wasn't a candidate, but really much see, correctly see, um, this government as a real threat on the gains that Indigenous people as a whole have made uh, in, in the last 14 years. That's that's beginning to happen. It's probably not yet anywhere, not, not at the scale that would be necessary to overturn a, a, a coup government. Um, as, as for now, the police and military seem to be pretty much on the side of the new government. And just in case if they weren't, the new government is making sure to, for instance, having changed the chain of command in the armed forces to bring in people more willing to be repressive towards protesters. In terms of the police, they've restored the police's role in, handi- in, in, in running the institution responsible for handing out uh, ID cards and licences, which was always traditionally a, uh, an, an institution used by the police for uh, corruption in order to enrich themselves. Uh, so that's a nice way of buying off the, the police force as well. Uh, I think what, what, will, what will determine what happens in the next period is, firstly, what stance the, the sort of anti-coup forces take. Um, I think they're going to have to decide what is their stance towards any future election, either as candidate or not as candidate, or what their stance is towards the October 20 results. I think it's clear that were they to simply say, look, we won the elections, Evo is our president, that would narrow their ability to um, expand to the kind of forces that may not necessarily like the idea of Eva being re-elected, but certainly don't like the current situation. Um, so I think that they'll have to decide what, what, what they do. And we're already seeing that, as I've said, a number of social movements and Eva himself have said, look, they're willing to negotiate, willing to have dialogue. They're willing to not, not have Evo stand as, as a candidate in any future elections if it helps to, to pacify the country and helps to restore constitutional order. But, of course, part of restoring the constitutional order is acknowledging that Evo is still president until January 2020. That's when his mandate finishes. And if, if, if he is to leave that position, his resignation has to be accepted by the, by the, uh, the, the parliament being, being convened. On the other side, it will be to depend on what the on the the, the, the reaction or what position the current government, um, the coup government, takes, and if they continue to escalate the sort of anti-indigenous discourse, it's um, and continue to view their position not as one of transitioning towards as quickly as possible to new elections, but rather one of essentially changing facts on the ground and wiping out the movement towards socialism in a kind of a revenge. Uh, for what, 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 what the movement towards socialism has represented for the last 14 years. I think that kind of will obviously push Bolivia into a very dangerous situation, but is also likely to provoke even fiercer response, um, and, and, you know, and one that's unclear of, of where or how that would, would unfold um, over the next couple of days and weeks. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we've, we've got to wrap it up. Um, but, yeah, thanks heaps for... Um Talking to us about this, um, yeah, quite uh, frankly disturbing and, and scary coup attempt, and yeah, hopefully we can see a, a, a massive response and that this coup attempt is, is defeated. Yes, yes, and we'll certainly um, see that happening. Over, you know, we'll see what happens in the, ne- the next few days. I, and we see that now the national, the 
moving towards socialism, MPs have uh, gone into parliament and are on hunger strike. We're seeing more and more from the countryside arriving in Al Alto, so certainly the next few days will be will be critical to see what what occurs. Hmm. All right, and uh, as as usual, just uh, keep your eye on greenleft.org.au. Uh, to to follow coverage coming out of there, which will be you know continuously sort of uh, updated, I guess. All right, um, thanks heaps for speaking with us this morning, Fred. Uh, thank you, thank you for the opportunity. All right, um, cheers. Yeah, Fred uh, Fred Fuentes there, the editor at uh, Green Left Weekly, uh, talking about what's happening in Bolivia. Pretty disturbing stuff. Um, all right, we're just going to go to a quick announcement, and then we're going to be speaking to James Lavery, the branch, the sub-branch secretary of the uh, Sydney Central branch of the Fire Brigade Employees Union in Sydney about the um, about the fires that are happening across New South Wales and the east coast at the moment. You're listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. You are listening to Green Left Radio on the Friday Morning Breakfast Show, broadcast live on 3CR Radio, 855 AM digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Green Left Radio is brought to you by the Green Left Weekly newspaper, providing a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment before profit. Subscribe to Green Left Weekly by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it's only $10 for the first seven issues. Accented women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accented women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Right. You're listening to Green Left Weekly Radio, and on the line we have um, James Lavery. Um, he is a New South Wales firefighter um, and is um, the Sydney Central Subbranch Secretary of the FBEU, which is the Fire Brigade Employers Union. Um, and so we have him on the line to talk about um, the situation um, that's unfolding right now with the extreme fires in New South Wales. So good morning, James. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Ah, um, I guess the first question I kind of want to ask is um, what can you tell us about the situation that's unfolding right now in New South Wales in regards to these fires? Yeah, well, with what's currently happening, this is probably the most intense start to a fire season that we've seen in recent memory. Um, we've got hundreds of thousands of hectares burning. It's impacting on homes, on properties, on livestock. Uh, there are thousands and thousands of firefighters on the ground doing everything they can uh, to try and, and protect people's homes and properties um, with the resources, with the limited resource in some cases that they have. And um, what can you tell us, I guess, your opinion on, on some of the causes of these um, extreme fires? Because um, it does come off as a bit unprecedented. <laughs> uh, it, it definitely does. Um, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not an environmental scientist, but what I can tell you, 
by working on the ground and being in the service for a long time is this the lack of rain at the moment, the, this drought that the whole country seems to be going through um, is creating a, a big part of that. Uh, also, the fire seasons have been going for longer. Uh, previously, the fire seasons used to run from mid to late October through till, till February, March. We're now seeing the fire season starting in August and running right through to April. What this does, it limits the window that we're able to perform our hazard reduction burns. Um, and with those burns, you need to be careful when we do them. We need to make sure it's not too hot so that they don't turn into bushfires. Um, but also, if it's too wet, we can't perform them. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely great getting this kind of perspective, I think. Um, and I guess what is your, in your opinion, the kind of, the state government's kind of response to this um, crisis? Well, I, I think it's fantastic that they, they eventually did call for a state of emergency. Uh, it gave the firefighters on the ground relief knowing that firefighters from other services, from other states, uh, are now able to come and assist. Because uh, we had firefighters who had been working 24-7 for days on end, trying to protect people's homes, trying to serve their communities. Uh, and this, you know, this this really gave them the nuts of opportunity, I guess, to know that help is on its way. Um, but looking at that, I think the government needs to look at, here in New South Wales, the budget for the New South Wales fire services has been steadily reduced over the last eight years. Uh, I think this is an opportunity for the government to look at the services they're providing to their, the people of New South Wales and understand that potentially these situations are going to get worse. We're going to continue down this path and they need to look at properly funding fire services and supplying the appropriate resources. And I guess um, this is going into, I guess, the other kind of um, aspect of um, the politics, I guess, around this is um, just in kind of like the mainstream kind of press, um, there's been kind of a lot of myths and, I guess, and false information being thrown around. I mean, one of them has been about how these fires have been caused by the Australian Greens Party, which is a party that's not even really in government. And, um, and of course, I think you also appeared on Q&A, which I didn't, I didn't watch, but there was... Um, there was a kind of, I remember there was a, um, a politician who was sort of saying, um, because I guess a lot of people are angry in response to these fires, um, especially when you have a government um, that has a lot of climate deniers, and, you know, politicians are kind of saying, you know, now is kind of like in light of these fires, not the time to talk about climate change. And I guess you, for you personally, I guess what is your kind of response to some of this stuff? Um, look, and as you, you said, the Greens aren't actually in power. Um, as far as them stopping hazard reductions, uh, as I said, the, the window to perform these hazard reductions is getting smaller and smaller. Um, so re- realistically, uh, with speaking about climate change, I've heard in the media people saying now's not the time, now we need to deal with these issues. If not now, I don't know when. This fire season is going to continue on for at least another five months through to April. The new fire season potentially starts in August. Our window to speak about these issues, to actually get the government on board, helping moving forward, getting plans in place, getting resources in place, every year is getting smaller and smaller. 
And I guess now, in light, I guess, of this um, crisis, I mean, you've spoken a bit about them, but I guess maybe it might be worth repeating and maybe talking about any more kind of demands. What is kind of like for your union, the Fire Brigade Employers Union, um, in light of this crisis, what are the demands you're going to be kind of putting forward um, to the state government um, and what has their current kind of response been? Um, so right now, our union is is basically looking to get more firefighters on the ground. Uh, recently, we've conducted an audit of our fire service and we found that they're short by approximately 600 staff on the ground frontline firefighters across our permanent and our retained, which is our on-call firefighters. Um, so also with the resources that we're after, uh, there's this gear that we need that's an essential gear that we're currently being told we need to fund internally, which is adding to the cuts that the government has put to our service. Now, firefighters, they'll do everything they can. They'll go out, they'll work day and night to protect their communities, but without the proper resources and without the backup of more firefighters, I fear that they're going to be found lacking. Yeah. Right, Zane just has a question. Uh, yeah, James, uh, my understanding is... Oh, sorry, my mic wasn't turned on. James, my understanding is that the the fire season isn't only getting longer in, in the southern hemisphere but also in the northern hemisphere, and this has created a problem where it's difficult for Australia to get its hands on firebombing aircraft uh, because they're still in use in parts of the northern hemisphere where there's fires. Does that mean that it's going to be necessary for uh, state or federal governments to directly purchase um, firebombing aircraft, helicopters, planes that will be permanently stationed here? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I know that the, fire, the ex-fire chiefs are out there at the moment. Uh, they tried to get meetings with the federal government, uh, with the Prime Minister, earlier this year for that exact reason. Uh, most of our aircraft are leased from the Northern Hemisphere, and with the seasons overlapping, we absolutely need to seriously look at getting our own aircraft for these situations. Hmm. All right. Um, I think we'll wrap it, I guess, wrap it up now. But um, do you kind of have any final comments you would kind of like to make? Yes, absolutely. So if you are affected by these fires, because it's not just happening in New South Wales, they're burning all the way up into Queensland. I know Victoria's had some, some bad fires earlier on in the year. Um, please stay safe. Please heed the warnings from your fire services. If you're asked to evacuate, please do so. The firefighters will do everything they can to protect your homes, but your life is more important. Hmm. All right. Thank you very much, James. <laughs> thanks, James. Thanks for having and, me on. Yeah, thanks for the, the work that you uh, are doing year-round to protect people. It's, uh, it's important stuff you do. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Um, yes, uh, James Lavery there, the Branch, sub-branch secretary of the Fire Brigade Employees Union uh, at Sydney Central. Uh, it, we are just coming up to 8am, and uh, that means it is time for the activist calendar. Yep. This is Irene Bolger, former secretary of the Nurses' Federation in Victoria. Throughout the nurses' dispute in 1986 and the waterfront dispute in 1998, 3CR was always there, broadcasting the voices of workers in struggle. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, and we're broadcasting live from the Bay to Chicken Strike here in Melbourne. 
we've just seen all of the thousands of nurses walk through to their meeting and people from different unions showing their solidarity. 3CR, radio for the workers, by the workers, since 1976. Join me, Aya Kwai, with Ubuntu Voices. Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word meaning I African Australian make to our communities in music, academia, the arts and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices every Wednesday at 8.30pm. None of us are free, one of us is chained, none of us are free. All right, it's time for the activist calendar. Um, so we have a number of events um, happening. Um, so to start off with tonight um, at 5.30pm, um, there's going to be a celebration, um, Palestine National Day at 5.30pm at the Federation Square in the city. Um, also happening at the same time is going to be a Melbourne bushfire silent vigil organised by Extinction Rebellion. Um, and then there is also going to be happening at the same time, there's going to be a speak out for bushfire victims, climate justice now, um, at the corner of Swanson and Burke Street, um, yet yeah, all happening at 5.30. Um, so there's a number of different events there. And then there'll be at 7.30pm, there'll be a Northcott Rebel Aid fundraiser for XR Legal Support, which will be happening at the Bar 303 in Northcott. Um, and then there will also be um, the Geelong um, a Green Left um, Trivia Night just in the Geelong Trades Hall if you happen to be down there from 6.30pm. On Saturday, um, there's also going to be a number of events happening. There is going to be the System Change, Not Climate Change, um, an anti-capitalist um, conference organised by Red Flag and Social Alternative at, um, from 9.30am to 6pm at the Trades Hall. Um, happening at 12pm, there's going to be a Global Day of Action Against Trade Union Repression in, in Melbourne at the 8-hour monument. Um, and then at 1pm will be um, the Slut Walk, Melbourne um, 2019 March against victim blaming. Um, and then, yep, and then some other events that will be um, happening will be on Monday um, night, there will be, um, oh no, no, not going, sorry, going to this event. On Monday 9am, there will be a blockade IMARC um, courts arrest, arrestees court solidarity action, which will be happening at 9am at the Melbourne Magistrates Court. Um, then at 6pm, there'll be a Green Left Weekly discussion, World in Revo- um, Revolt and Revolution, um, happening at the Resistance Centre, Level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Then there'll be, on Monday night, there'll be a public forum organised by XR Unions, Adjust Transitions, Workers' Rights and the Environment Movement, um, at Monday, November the 18th, um, at the Victorian Trades Hall. And then on Tuesday, there'll be a public forum Climate, War and Refugees, Rising Sea Levels and Rapid Change in the Climate is leading to a situation where potentially more than 150 million people will be forced to leave their homes by 2050. Um, 
and this will be a, panel, a public forum that will feature panel speakers and it'll be happening at Tuesday, November 19th at 6.30 with dinner from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street. Um, and then on Wednesday, there'll be a public forum, um, the future of Victoria Markets at 6pm at the Drill Hall Multicultural Hub 26 Ferry Street in the city. Um, and then there'll be a film screening, um, The Life and Times of Frida Kahlo from happening at 7.30pm up the Hoyts, Melbourne Central, Level, um, level 3 corner of La Trobe and Swanson Street. Um, and then from Saturday... Um, um, the 23rd of November, there'll be uh, a Young Workers Working for Climate Justice um, conference happening, um, happening from 10am to 4pm, I think just at the Shades Hall. Um, and then there'll be another event, I think, organised by Lasnet Solidarity, Is This the End of Neoliberalism? Learning from Latin America, um, just at the Victorian Shades Hall. Um, and then also starting on Saturday, from Saturday... November the 23rd to Saturday, November the 30th. There'll be a Resistance Bookshop end-of-year book sale. Our annual sale, 25% off all stock. If you want to donate books, call 96398622. And so from Saturday and Sunday, I'll be going from 10am to 6pm, Monday to Friday, 11am to 6.30pm. And it's just at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street. Um... And then on Wednesday, November the 27th, there'll be Rally for the Future of Melbourne's um, Transport happening at 10am at, at the Parliament House. And then um, on getting to the next events, on Thursday, 28th of November, there'll be a Rally for Nature um, outside the Parliament Steps. And then Thursday, November the 28th, there'll be a um, 165th um, Eureka Rebellion Anniversary Dinner with dinner, drinks and speeches at the MUA 46 Island Street in West Melbourne. And then on Friday, November the 29th, there'll be Friday for the Futures. Um, calling, um, Greta Thunberg has called for a global client strike, so Union Students for Client Justice are calling are going to be organising a rally at 12pm at the State Library, Friday, November the 29th. And then um, the next, just to try and find the next, oh yep, the next event, there'll be, um, there'll also be on Thursday, November, um, December the 5th, there'll be How Labour um, Built Neoliberalism with Elizabeth Humphreys and guests at the New International Bookshop. And then <coughs> from Saturday, um, December, um, Saturday, 7th of December to the um, Sunday, the 8th of December, there will be the Historical Materialism Conference just at the Trades Hall. And then Saturday, December the 7th, there will be Rally for Permanent Reasons and Family Union at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. And then on from 2 to 10pm, there will be a Rise Up West Papua Benefit Gig from 2 to 10pm at the Underground Car Park, 44 Harmsworth Street in Collingwood. Alright, so that's, I think... Yeah, pretty much it for the events. There might be a few more, but yeah, I think that's there's quite a lot um, happening kind of towards the tail end of um, the year in terms of what sorts of kind of different activist events being organised. Word. All right. All right, we'll play a quick announcement and then go into talking about some of the latest news. You don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? 
Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the Defenders of Government Schools. 12pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. Three CR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to the Three CR Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Just come on to Three CR Community Radio. Araja al Ishtarak al An. Ningal ungalin samuha vanali Three CRi kertu kundi Están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. Alrighty, welcome back. You are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR. It's Friday morning. Nine minutes past eight. All right. So, um, just a, a really kind of positive kind of news story that's kind of happened that just happened last night um, was Baruz Bushani has um, left Papua New Guinea and may seek asylum in New Zealand. Um, essentially, the situation is that um, Mr. Bushani received a visitor's visa to travel to Christchurch, New Zealand, to speak at a literary event about his award-winning book, No Friend But the Mountains, and he is not ruling out claiming asylum in the country. Um, the former Ma- Manus Island detainee received temporary um, travel documents and permission from the PNG Immigration Department to travel to New Zealand um, for the event, which is run by Word Christchurch. At, po- uh, at Port Mosby International Airport before boarding his plane, Mr. Borshani said he was happy he survived. He told the AB and he told the ABC he was not planning to head back to Papua New Guinea. Um, and in terms of like what I guess what's happening next, Mr. Bushani, um, who was recently been accepted, um, has also been recently accepted for resettlement in the United States, and said he was investigating whether he could fly from New Zealand to the U.S. once the process was completed. Many refugees have waited several min- um, months to travel to the U.S. after being accepted. Um, the process is very slow and it's not clear, and he doesn't not know not know how long it will take. Mr. Bushani said. And of course, there's um, right now happening right now in Port Mosby. There are many people who have been waiting to depart to the US. And then also, he's also considering the options of um, applying for asylum in New, um, in New Zealand. And there's also a historical precedent for a similar situation happening for another notable refugee activist, uh, other refugee from Manus Island, Abdul Aziz. Mohammed um, travelled to Switzerland to receive a human rights award. Mr. Mohammed later applied for and was granted asylum in the country. And of course, uh, New Zealand has a long-standing offer to accept 150 refugees from Manus and Nauru, but it has not been accepted by the Australian government, which would raise concerns. It could create a backdoor to access Australia. And then Mr. Bushani said that he was not concerned about the reaction for Australia if he claimed asylum in New Zealand. Um, and he's also been receiving a lot of kind of broad support in, um, in New Zealand. 
Um, so, yeah, I think this is quite a positive development, especially for all the hard work um, that Bushani has done from Manus Island speaking out about against the situation in Manus. Mm. And I think, you know, on whatever route he kind of takes, I think he will continue to be an outspoken advocate and an activist um, fighting for the rest of the refugees lying on Manus. Um, and I think it, I think it continues, I think... Um, the fight, I guess, has to con- still continue until every single kind of refugee is released from Manus. Of course, the government hasn't actually done anything in Fury, actually. He's, um, Bookshani has managed to find a way out through the fact, through the fact that, um, through speaking out, um, as, as a journalist, um, and through writing that book, No Friend But the Mountains. But yeah, it's still, I think it's still a positive, um, a very positive kind of development. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a huge relief to see, um, yeah, someone who's been such a vocal and articulate voice for those stuck in the torture camps to finally be released from such a disgraceful and horrible situation. Um, now, the other developments um, that's kind of happening is um, uh, the, the protests um, in Hong Kong are starting to kind of heat up, mm. um, and it's kind of being... This is all kind of following, um, there's been a number of, there's been a death of a protester at the hands of, uh, of police that happened, I think, last week, and there was a vigil held for the protests, um, in Melbourne, I, I, I thought. Um, but I guess now, sort of happening in, um, guess what's happening now, um, is university campuses are basically becoming a new kind of battleground, and, um, it's read, Written here in the ABC that pro-democracy protesters have again paralysed parts of Hong Kong, which is forcing schools to close and block highways as school, um, students build barricades and stockpiled makeshift weapons, setting the stage for campus showdowns. Um, there's thousands of students, um, protesters, students who are hunkered down, surrounded by piles of food, bricks, petrol bombs, arrows with heads wrapped in cladding, carports and other homemade weapons. And, and of course, pl- police have said that um, um, protesters shot several arrows near the, near them near uh, near them near the um, Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Um, and then other kind of situations that kind of coin uh, independent um, investigation into alleged police brutality and misconduct, as is one of the five demands issued by protesters who have taken to Hong Kong streets every week for more than five months. And of course, many blame. Um, the police for the death of the 22-year-old university student Shou Tsitsik, who died last week after falling from the second floor of the car park. And Mr Payne urged Hong Kong authorities to address the recommendations of an international expert panel, which concluded that Hong Kong's Independent Peace Complaints Council was limited in its ability to oversee, um, oversee the police. So really there's there's definitely I guess an escalation in the situation the protests are still continuing um, and the protesters are still making kind of more and more kind of demand so I guess it'll be kind of interesting to kind of see where it all goes. Mm. Yeah, it's kicking off. Yeah, it's cool to see people <laughs> ripping up paving stones, building brick walls. Yeah. Um actually might I think it will also be worth kind of talking about all the kind of um give a kind of picture of all the kind of global revolts that kind of happening around the world. But I guess before going into that, we might go into playing a quick announcement. I think Zane might want to play a quick song as well. Yeah. Have you got it on your phone? My my phone has uh, had some ongoing issues of not wanting to talk to the uh, talk to the 
facilities here at uh, 3CR. But yeah, we'll just play another quick announcement. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Alright, uh, you're listening to 3CR and we're just going to play a quick song. It's Racist by Friends of Rom and I believe they are playing at the Corner Hotel tonight. If you want to go check out Friends All. Friends of Rom, racists, and uh, yeah, apologies, that probably should have come with a bit of a language warning slash not being played at this hour of the morning on this, uh, your community uh, radio station. Uh, I forgot that there might have been a couple of um, 
couple of curly words in that one, but uh, yeah, Friends of Rom, if you want to check them out, they're playing tonight at the Corner Hotel. I don't know if there's tickets still available. I hope there is, because uh, I wouldn't mind getting along myself. See a bit of Friends all for old times' sake. Uh, all right, what's a uh, bit of a bit of a um, roundup? I think of the global revolt against austerity and neoliberalism and horrible governments. Yeah, so I thought I'd go, and this is um, just directly taken from an article that we've printed in Green Left Weekly um, that goes through all the kind of different revolts that are kind of happening around the world. I guess one of the things we're kind of in interesting times with, you know, the growing kind of client emergency, the growing inequality um, between the rich and the poor um, as a result of neoliberalism. And so the first kind of um, thing that's been, ha- um, I guess, the first country to give a bit of spotlight to is in Hatley. Is that how you pronounce it? Haiti. Haiti. Um, in Haiti, um, for more than eight weeks, protesters have been mobilising to call on the corrupt um, President um, Jovenel Moïse to resign. And the result, this revolt stems from nearly 30 years of corruption, oppression and authoritarian rule, and before that, centuries of colonial ex- uh, um, exploitation. And then these protests, in, there's been protests in September, which have marked 28 years since the bloody 1991 US, United States backed military coup d'etat against um, Haiti's first democratic elected um, president, Jean Bertrand Astrill. And every de- democratic gain has been undermined by US-backed regime change or by electoral fraud. Um, and Moose's government cannot pay its fuel, b- fuel bills, which means shortages across the country. Meanwhile, politicians are plundering development aid for their personal benefit, including um, you, um, two, um, two billion US dollars in development funds from Venezuela's Petrocarbi fund. Um, in Chile, which we've um, done a bit of, um, we've done a bit of um, coverage on in the past, um, to give a bit of a recap of it, you know, on October the 17th, a mass revolt erupted, ignited by a campaign of civil disobedience led by high school and university students opposed to subway fare increases. And of course, billionaire Sebastian Panera is scrapped the fare increases, but the uprising continued as a result of the police violence against the students and decades of neoliberalism and austerity. More than 5,000 people, you know, because I guess to summarise what's happening in Chile, essentially people rose up um, to roll back um, a big, um, a big bunch of um, austerity, um, this sort of subway fare increase mm. but you know because they managed to win that and because they face so much kind of repression doing so people I think are starting to go for this kind of moment where they're starting to become confident in their own power and actually pushing for more than just simply scrapping um, austerity so you know give a bit of an overall up to 2 million people have mobilised in the capital San Diego in October, on October 25th in the largest demonstration in Chile's history thousands, hundreds of thousands more gathered in all major cities, villages and town, many of whom were first-time protesters. And then now Algeria, there's a, a youthful, peaceful and vibrant protest movement erupted in February in response to 82-year-old former president, uh, Abdelaz Bautica, I don't know how to struggling to pronounce that, announced he would stand for a fifth term. 
And, of course, this um, huge protest movement forced him to resign and the interim government um, has promised to hold new elections, which are um, scheduled for December 12th. And I guess a bit of context and background, people are increasingly angry with the lack of jobs, restrictions on political expression and rampant corruption, and they want the ruling elites to step down and democratic institutions to be set up before elections are hauled. And thousands took on to the streets in a general strike on October 28th and November 1st, the anniversary of the Algerian Revolution. And the movement has adopted a slogan um, from the day of independence struggle, only one hero, the people. Um, and then we have Lebanon, where which started as a modest protest against regressive taxes in mid-October, including a tax on WhatsApp calls, has rapidly go- grown into a mass spontaneous protest movement. Um, and after sustained mobilizations across Lebanon, the government of Prime Minister Saad Hariri was forced to resign. And at its peak, um, the protest movement formed a 170 kilometer um, long human chain from Shaphuri to Tyre. And, um, you know, the resignation has been of the, um, of the Prime Minister has been one of the movement's demands. However, demonstrations are continuing for basic amenities, including 24-hour electricity and access to drinking water, as well as political and legal rights. And, of course, the um, arrival of more than one million refugees from Syria has also exacerbated the political and economic situation. Um, and then in Iraq, um, tens of thousands of people united across religious divides are turning out daily for huge anti-government protests demanding the regime step down. Um, despite Iraq having the world's um, fourth largest oil reserves, youth unemployment is 25% and many people live in poverty with limited access to clean water, electricity, healthcare or education. The devastating US-led um, invasions of Iraq in 1991 and 2003, which led to the oil sector being privatised, combined with brutal economic sanctions in between, um, have contributed to the current economic disaster. Iraqis also blame the cr- political elites and a corrupt system that monopolises power among um, sectarian party. Um, and then there's been um, Hong Kong with mass protests every week since June um, with Hong Kong, when Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam introduced a bill that allowed the extra extradition of criminal suspects to mainland China. And of course the movement has grown grown far beyond concerns about the extradition bill to become a generalised revolt against China's takeover of the former British colony. The protests have mobilised millions of people and the protests are um, united around several demands including for the complete withdrawal of the extradition bill which has been officially scrapped in October. Universal suffrage, um, Hong Kong residents are unable to directly select their leader as well as the bulk of the MPs and accountability for the police. And then, um, and then the next, um, the next one is, um, the last two is in West Papua, where a new wave of protest, um, in West Papua was sparked by racist attacks by Papuan students in the Indonesian city of Sarah. Bayer in August, and West Papuans have been struggling for more than 60 years against Indonesia occupation, human rights violations, and for the right to self-determination. And then since August, untold numbers of protests, protests, including many um, students, have been killed, arrested, or disappeared. The internet is shut down, and journalists are not allowed to report from inside West Papua. A number of human rights activists are still in custody, and Indonesia human rights lawyer Rionica Komen, currently hiding in Australia, is currently wanted by the Indonesian authorities for her work in defending the rights of West Papuans. 
Um, and then the next thing is you, we have the whole climate emergency with it's sparking a, a new wave of mass protests across, um, uh, across the globe, which mm. is led by high school students. Um, in August 2008, it all started in August um, 2018 with climate activist Greta Thunberg began her solo st- um, school strike for climate outside the Swedish Parliament. And then last November, Extinction Rebellion activists blocked blocked Fire Bridge over the famed river in London. And then in March, more than 2,000 youth-led climate strikes were organised in 125 countries and involved 1.6 million people. And then on September the 20th, 4 million people joined the global school strike in the more than 2,500 events in um, over 150 countries. So, yeah, that's just a bit of the summary of the kind of global revolt that's kind of happening around the world. And I think, you know... We can hope that this is going to develop into um, into something more, even more radical. Can I? Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty exciting times, and uh, yeah, the potential. I, I, I hope that there's this kind of fusion of all these huge climate protests that the kids are leading, and some of these anti-austerity kind of protests, and it all melds into this big global revolution to tear down the system and take radical action to stop us all burning to a crisp in coming decades. I live in hope, people. I live in hope. Uh, well, we're getting towards the end of the show. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's pretty much that time. Beyond Zero Emissions are... Uh, Standing outside the studio door, they're about to come in and do their show, so uh, I think we're going to hang up the boots for another week, and we'll catch you next Friday morning. You've been listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and yeah, if you want to become a subscriber, check it out, just go greenleft.org.au forward slash support. It's five bucks a month, and you can support alternative media. All right, catch you around. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Three pieces of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. start sometime. What better place than here? What better time than now? because you are Ubuntu celebrate the positive contribution 